drums, please. Hi, it's me, Ash Kanazi, your favorite North London Jewish queen. I am here to bring to you the secrets from the pink room. Pink room, pink room, it's the pink room, pink room, pink room, with the Nazi. Pink room, pink room, it's the pink room, pink room, pink room, not the stink room. Hello, my bubblers. It's me, Ashkenazi, reminding you that LGBTQ progress is owed to black transgender women. Welcome to the Pink Room, the queerest backstage since the Blonde Ambition Tour. For season one finale, I invited one of my closest friends to join me in the Pink Room so we could have a right old kiki. That man is Max Bloom founding member of Yuck, founding member of Cajun Dance Party, an absolute guitar hero. Max is also a fellow North London Ashkenazi Jew, so the perfect candidate to bring into the pink group. In our time together, we discussed how one survives as a musician off tour, the Weezer Cruise, how to be in a band in the current state of affairs, and how Max caused the worst Zoom bombing of all time. So, here it is. Max Bloom in the pink room with me, Ashkenazi. Welcome to the pink room. I am over the moon to bring my special friend, Max Bloom, into my queer backstage area. Max, welcome. Hello, Ash. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) I'm going to start with the basic question which is what is the item that is most important to you on tour first of all i'm glad you asked my item comes in two pieces actually it looks like that thing from austin powers but um (laughs) what what it is is (laughs) um a coffee aeropress because when you're on tour i don't have time for shit coffee i just i just don't so what i have done on tour in the past which has been really really amazing for me is i carry a little tupperware around with with me and little aeropress pieces and good ground coffee and then at any service station you can get hot water and so you have access to amazing coffee you don't have to buy starbucks or costa or you know like some rubbish like American gas station chain you can have good coffee wherever you are in the world I mean it does look like some sort of bizarre kind of plunging sex toy but (laughs) I realized that (laughs) I realized that as soon as I like picked it up I was like (laughs) oh shit so I guess let's start with how we know each other okay let's go back to the first time I saw you at the pub behind the bar meeting you had been a big thing for us Largely because we stole one of your songs, but <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm but... still waiting to hear back from my lawyers about that. <laughs> um, but we saw you behind the bar, and I remember walking up to you. The look on your face was one of sheer terror. <laughs> um, I don't think I've told you this before, but on my first a pit like encounter with you, I thought you were the biggest dick on the planet. Did you really? I thought we had a, a great night that night. Ash. No, no. I... What, is all this, what is all this about? But I think the best friendships are formed on that basis. I would tend to agree. But can I just say in my defense? Yeah. It was about 8 p.m. And that was the start of my shift at the Shackwell Arms. Let's talk about that first. How does one make money when you're not on tour? See, this is something I've been grappling with my whole life. Mm. It is really difficult. I mean, it's something that I found really challenging. And it is challenging nowadays because obviously, like, not to kind of get into it too much, but the music industry is not what it was uh, 20 or even 10 years ago. So earning a living from music is, is really difficult. And there have been many times when I've been on tour and I've been living day to day on PDs and have not been able to, like, afford... To, to have dinner that that's like the reality of it it's it is horrible but like you know you're in america and like often like you know 
when you're especially when you're funding a tour yourself you're budgeting yourself so it, it is really difficult to um to afford to live but um in terms of when you're off tour finding a job that is uh sympathetic to the fact that you're going to be away for many months of the year is fucking difficult yeah. like nearly impossible so that's why you find a lot of musicians doing bar work which is what i did i worked at the shackwell arms um in dawson for a very long time there's a great venue i say very long time like it, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't actually that long um compared to some of the people that were working there it, it felt like a long time because it was really 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 difficult like get getting out of the shackwell arms at like at five in the morning was really difficult you just you really quickly become a vampire a lot of people do bar work and i worked with a lot of musicians as well um some were touring musicians uh some weren't just like played in band uh, in bands in london um just like in the local scene what is a um, non-touring musician are they a musician <laughs> of course like i mean you know you, you can be you can be a musician um and not tour you can be uh someone who just makes beats on on garage band or, or fruity loops in your bedroom and you know that's a musician but look it, it was really difficult i've done i've done loads of jobs um just to kind of try and make ends meet when i haven't been on tour it never really worked out for me and i always ended up making myself miserable and yeah, that's yeah. why <laughs> that's why i'm actually a lot kind of happier that i'm sort of not touring nowadays because it was a really difficult sort of almost double life that I had to live. That takes me right to an audio recording that I want to play you. Oh shit. <laughs> is it incriminating? <laughs> it's not incriminating, but this is the response about what's touring like that really scares me. And yeah. I mean, this is taking you back to your yuck years, but I want to just play this moment back to you just take a second to really like absorb the moment here because this is why i did this podcast because when asked do you like touring this is the classic response like i mean when i imagined when i was younger and i wanted to be in a band like i never really took into account touring or whatever but like it's like the best and most rewarding thing in the world like getting to play a show every night and seeing all these different places it's amazing um it's you know and i mean when i was younger i didn't really think about stuff like that <laughs> Wow, what? I was such an articulate 23 year old. <laughs> <laughs> now you're older and wiser. How much do you agree with that statement? Look, like I need to caveat that by saying that that was in an interview situation and you can't True. come across like a negative bastard in an interview. You've got to sound like really positive, like, yeah, happy to be here. This is great. But actually, like a lot of the like, <laughs> It's really difficult because it's not um, because I am grateful for my many years that I spent touring. I'm extremely grateful. I think it was a really unique experience and I did have some really, really good times. To be completely honest, like it almost like nearly destroyed me. Like I'm not going to lie, like there were some like crushing negative times as well. It's not all good. Like it can be really damaging, I think. And I think touring i've always said is is an art form almost like you've got to practice yeah. you've got to practice touring to get good at it and if you go into it being like oh this you know this is great i'm gonna you know do whatever i want i'm gonna get drunk every night you will quickly burn yourself out and yeah. i i sound i sound a, i sound a lot older than i am but <laughs> but um but you know i've been doing this for for you know over 10 years but i actually fucking have <laughs> and yeah it's like it's really hard and and i've been i've been i've been there i've hit rock bottom <laughs> uh, okay so would you rather talk about rock bottom or high point first because we're going to cover both let's start with high point okay the weezer cruise was the most hedonistic four days of my life <laughs> i mean first of all the email that we got from our manager was a simple email that just said, do you want to play on a cruise with Weezer? And I think Johnny's response was, yes, I would love to play on a cruise ship with, Reese with Weezer. So obviously we agreed. And then the cruise was from Miami to Mexico. 
it lasted for four nights. So two nights there, two days there, and then you um, stop off in Mexico and do some fun outdoor activities. What was and, the fun outdoor activity that you did? Well, that was a really poor decision on my part, actually. Um, so I chose to, <laughs> for like a reason that I still don't know, I chose to do uh, transparent bottom kayaking, which... <laughs> which is exactly how it sounds. <laughs> the problem was with transparent bottom kayaking was that I was like one of the most, it was the most hungover probably that I've ever been. Once you're several hundred meters out to sea, like you have to get back. Like, also, you don't want to throw up in a, in a transparent kayak. No, my question is, who's it transparent for? Because when someone says transparent bottom to me, I just imagine you with a t-shirt on and nothing else. And so all these fishes are seeing your bare, hairy bum. Like, oh, do you know it's hairy? Well, uh, honey, <laughs> look, we're both North London Jews. Like, you know, North London Jews, we don't get away with that hairless gene. Why no, are Jews right. so hairy? It's a question that I've been struggling with for many years, since puberty, for sure. Yet you're bald. Yeah, I know. That's nature's cruel fucking joke. <laughs> <laughs> hair everywhere, apart from your head. I, I'm gonna, let's talk about a low point now, which was Reaper Barn. <laughs> well, you know, yes, that was a low point, but it also, it wasn't, it wasn't that low. Like, the, lo the lowest point about that was just the fact that we slept on the floor in the airport, but you know, I've done that before. Like I've slept in vans, you know, I've, <laughs> I've slept in horrible places. So it didn't really feel like that bad. I mean, at the time, maybe it wasn't so great, but you know, that in, in comparison to everything I've experienced, I would, I would class that as a medium point. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I remember it really badly because my cat had died. Yeah, and I was bad. in like floods of tears and I had work the next day. So yeah, I, I think touring requires you to sleep in uncomfortable situations. And the result of that is I can sleep anywhere now. Literally, mm. if I lie down, I can go to sleep. I could lie down right now and I could go to sleep. Well, that's, that's really lucky. That's a good skill, actually. Like, I mean, I, I kind of have the opposite problem. I have like really bad insomnia. Like I can't, I can't sleep. I can barely sleep in my bed. Like I can't sleep on planes. I can't sleep like in, in the van, like absolutely yeah. not. It's, oh, yeah. it's, it's really bad. Bad things happen on tour when you lose track of time. And when you, you know, because you're in a situation when, you, when, where you're like completely devoid of any responsibility, you quickly turn into to a baby. And so, um, you know, it's it's good to kind of have something that allows you to kind of ground yourself and, and realize that time is, is still passing in like a regular way. You become a baby when you have a tour manager and a sound guy right. and yeah. whatever. Um, when you have those luxuries, then then yes, you you become a baby. You're like, you know, you don't have to think. You're told when to eat, when to sleep, when to be anywhere. You and it's it's really quite unhealthy. It can have a negative effect on your on your mental state. But if you're organizing your own tour and you're the tour manager and you're in control of the budget and whatever, and you have to kind of collect receipts and everything like that, then mm -hmm. it's completely different. You have responsibility and you know you're you're working essentially mm. all the time. So that's a bit different. No, I understand what you mean. I never reached like the height of luxury. Mm. I wish I had. I never got to the tour bus level. Mm. I always wanted that tour bus moment. I mean, do you ever get a bus? Yes. So the weird thing for me was that I started, I, I was in a band called Cajun Dance Party and we got signed when we were 16 to Exile Recordings. And that was like the music industry back in those days was like obviously like a very very different thing the mm. bands that got big in those days are still big today like bombay bicycle mm. club the people that were also like signed alongside us were you know people like adele it was ridiculous and the level of of money that was flying around that was it was like it was like the housing bubble it was like the music industry then was like you know they were like banks they were using their money like incredibly irresponsibly um and you know we kind of saw the benefits of that i suppose so like when we went on tour like 
we when our when our album got released we did a little tour in france and like a little tour in the uk but they gave they gave us a tour bus like and it was you know it was like one of my first experiences of touring and an insane level of luxury but it set the bar like incredibly high (laughs) and i would never ever see you know i would never see that see it that high again but it was it was amazing it was amazing so what was it that brought Cajun Dance Party to an end because I remember at the time I was going to like underground festival I was fucking obsessed with Bombay Bicycle Club like sitting outside that spider venue the one in Brick Lane that had eight in the name what like what 93 feet east that's the one I don't know where I got spider from and I remember like sitting outside and Jack Steadman playing the guitar and like I just was like oh I want to Mm. like ejaculate all over you but what was it what was it like and i and i distinctly remember the music industry at the time turning to me and being like well cajun dance party fucked it what was it that brought it to an end what was it i i'm dying to know and i think our audience is dying to know as well i'm I'm sure i'm sure they are everyone who's heard of cajun dance party I'm sure. I'm sure they're all dying to know all of all of our five fans. Um, well, yeah, um, I think. Was it touring? No, it wasn't because, like, as I said previously, like we had like a really luxurious experience mm. when we were touring. I think if touring breaks a band, it's because they're sleeping on floors, and you get to an age when you just can't do that anymore, um, which is kind of basically what happened to, to me. But, uh, <laughs> but. Like in terms of what brought it to an end, like, I mean, first of all, like when we got signed, we were 16, like yeah. we were so young. I I don't think I read my rec- the record contract. And like, I told our manager that and I was, and he was like, this is the most important agreement you'll ever sign in your life. And I was like, I don't care. It's too long. It's too boring. I don't understand any of the words. So <laughs> I was, I was there mentally and you know, we were, th- we were thrust into this very extreme situation and I mean, it was weird, like, back in those days, when you think about what music is like nowadays, like, when you put your music on the internet, it, like, it gets lost in this kind of swamp of <laughs> of, of music. But in those days, we, we literally, like, uploaded our tracks to MySpace. And I think, like, a week later, we had, like, every single major record label calling us. Jesus um, It was... It was it was really weird, but and we we had just recorded four songs and we were, you know, we were still at school. The, in answer to your question, like what what brought it to an end was the fact that like, I think for for a majority of the band being musicians for the rest of their lives was not like on their on their list of things to do. Mm. Like it was something that we did when we were sixteen, and and you know we all fell into it as it as it happened for for the other members they were all very academic and they wanted to go to university and they and they wanted to do other things. And mm-hmm. I think at the time I found that really difficult to understand and I was really hurt by it. Um, you know, Ro- Robbie went to Cambridge. He's like insanely clever um, and he still does music and he's like one of the most talented musicians that that I will ever know. But when when he said like, I've got a place at Cambridge, I'm going to go to Cambridge, I was, I was, I was devastated and I, I just could not understand. But... I was young and yeah. I think that's one of the one of the biggest issues is like it's the band or nothing. Yeah. And I I went to Oxford University and I remember when I got the place, the other guys I was in the band with at the time were like, well, you can't do both. And to anyone listening out there, if you want to be in a band, I recommend, strongly recommend that you choose a path whereby you get to do what you want and do the band. I just think it it it's just so destructive. Mm. Um, well, you put the band before anything, and that includes oh. friendships. That includes friendships within the band. It's yeah. like if you're if you're um, even with the people that you that you started the band with. It's like the band comes first before anything, and yeah. when it starts when it starts to come first before yourself and and your mental health, that's that's dangerous. But yeah, you know, you get you get swept up in it so easily. You get tunnel vision because it's just the rewards, like the the ends justify the means. You know, Cajun dance party. Like I was, I was really upset when it ended, but ultimately, like 
I wanted, I was not a creative part in Cajun Dance Party. I was, I was the bassist and I was so, so desperate to write songs in my own band and play guitar because that was my main instrument. So starting Yuck was like a big deal that it was like my baby. And I think Yuck was, I got into a situation where like, I wasn't having any fun. I was like such a perfectionist. And I think I, I probably, you know, gave the people I was in a band with like a hard time because like I was such a perfectionist. Like there couldn't be a note out of place when we played live. I changed my guitar strings like every three shows. Like I was, yeah, I was an anxious mess. Like it had to be perfect. And like, thing is like, it's funny because like Yuck was not perfect. It was not perfect music, but like- well, that was the thing. That's what got me into Yuck was the imperfection. So it dry, yeah. it was, I mean, I mean, to be honest, like I'm thinking the same thing was like, the pe- reason people liked happiness was the imperfection levels. Yet we were such fucking perfectionists. It was wild. I think it's just like, I cared about the band so deeply that yeah I just wanted I mean I've, I've always been a perfectionist in this, but it's like a really big like personality flaw because perfection does not exist you'll never like write the best song you'll never like play the best show and you know as I've grown older I've realized that I love playing live and I love seeing live shows because people make mistakes and that's mm. like the funniest thing about um and the most charming thing when you see a band and they fuck up and they laugh about it I remember when we played Coachella uh it was well it was like it was a big deal but like you know we had this like we were playing this new song we had released at the time called Chew it was it was a standalone single between our first and second albums but like we had like barely rehearsed it and I was like we're gonna start our Coachella set with it and it's gonna be like really epic we had like a really good slot and then we played it and it just went horribly wrong and like the way I felt afterwards was like, I was so, so upset. And like looking back on it, like I really shouldn't have been like, it was just, and I've yeah. seen, you know, I've seen YouTube videos of that performance and it was it's, fun. And it's, yeah, 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 yeah. This is one of the things that I've learned. Well, Brian Eno was the guy that told me this. He tells me a lot of things, <laughs> not in person, but like, <laughs> I'm always happy to hear what he has to say, but... He always says that in the moment, you're always questioning yourself. Like I am sitting here talking to one of my best friends and I'm questioning everything I'm saying because like that is the nature of living in the moment, right? If you're an artist, I feel. Um, And I think I just got to accept it's going to be fine. On that note, I'm going to bring us back. Like this is classically me because my mind just goes, bang, 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 bang. I'm going to take us back to the Weezer cruise. Because I wish I'd stuck on that and we went like roundabout. But basically, so we're back up, we're back on the cruise. Okay. I mean, what was the weirdest encounter from that? The weird thing about the Weezer cruise was that you were stuck on the Weezer cruise. There was no escape. And like the people who went on the Weezer cruise were lovely, but you know, if if you did come across like a bit of a weird person, like you you there was no escape, like unless you jumped off the boat. By and large, like everyone everyone was lovely. Um, I mean, we were playing the Weezer Cruise with obviously Weezer, who are a huge band for me, but also Dinosaur Junior were playing, who are like one of the reasons why I started Yuck. So all I wanted to do was was meet Jay Mascus, um, but Jay Mascus is like famously, I guess, not very talkative. He he did a very good job of, of, of avoiding everyone on the boat uh, for like the entirety of of the cruise. Like, I don't think he wanted to be there. I think he actually brought a friend with him just to kind of like cushion like the weirdness. We got a note kind of slipped under our door with the Weezer logo that said it was obviously typed by like an intern that said like, "Hey guys, we thought it would be uh, really lovely if we could all meet in the uh, <laughs> in the lounge, one of the many lounges um, of the boat, and just like all kind of get to know each other. Lots of love, Weezer, and all the bands that were playing were there. So it was like us and the Antlers and uh, Waves and Dinosaur Junior and Sabado." I um I did manage to kind of have a bit of a conversation with Jay Mascus 
um, but he was not kind of receptive. I, I kind of went up to him and, and I was like, hey, like, how's it, how's it going? And it was just like kind of one word answers. Um, but but then I started talking to him about, about ice cream because I, I can't remember. I think I was just at a bit of a loose end. I was like, this conversation's like going nowhere. I need to like make this count. Like, I'm just going to take a complete shot in the dark here. Like, um, they have really good ice cream on this boat. Like, have you tried it? And, and then he just kind of really lit up at that conversation topic. And we had a, an okay conversation about ice cream and different types of ice cream and ice cream that you can get in Europe and stuff like that and yeah and that was it and it was lovely i didn't really i didn't really talk to like any members of weezer i think as far as i remember like i think the the different members of weezer were just kind of going around the room just being like we're on a boat how weird is that and and that was it <laughs> and it was weird i mean uh, a cruise is literally like my idea of an absolute dream when i say it was hedonistic like basically like you get given a credit card at the beginning of the cruise and and you give uh your credit, your credit or debit card details, you, they're assigned to this special cruise credit card. And yeah. all the money you spend on the boat is, you know, on that kind of special cruise credit card. And basically yeah. the idea is that you don't know how much money you're spending. So my, <laughs> yeah. my bill at the end was fucking massive. And it was just, <laughs> it's like all these like really expensive drinks. Like every day I would start, I would start drinking like really early. Cause it's like, it doesn't feel real. Like all these rules about like, Oh, you should probably start drinking at like six or whatever. It's like, no, I'm going to start drinking at like 12. <laughs> I've got a special piece of plastic that doesn't exist. <laughs> in money terms yeah and then there was like gambling and stuff like i didn't gamble that much but like i lost a, a tiny bit of money at the end <laughs> touring and gambling is something that certainly doesn't go together um going i remember when we went to vegas and <laughs> i just i just couldn't cope with it but someone someone with another another type of brain like one of those addictive brains that people mm. have they would lose all their money for sure one thing that did happen was that i i won a 300 dollars sapphire necklace <laughs> <laughs> you told me about this before and i have to hear it again it's iconic well, <laughs> who did you give it to i don't know i feel like i gave it to my girlfriend at the time probably but mm. um we're not together anymore so i should have sold <laughs> yeah um no i was it was kind of after the like hungover transparent bottom kayaking day and we were <laughs> on our way back to the cruise and there was this i mean so the kind of our destination was this place called Cozumel which is a really kind of it's like disney it's almost like kind of disney island or something it's like not really doesn't really feel very real there was this kind of like shopping parade like lead, leading up to the port and there was this guy sort of standing outside this jewelry shop and he was just like hey guys we're about to like do a raffle for a $300 sapphire necklace do you want to put your name in and, and I was like yeah fuck it why not um and then I was like when are you calling the names he was like we're doing it right now and then and then he put his hand in the hat and then he took my name out and, and you'd max written blue. max bloom yeah yeah and, and he he shouted out max bloom and then um and then that was it. I was like, okay, cool. Thank you for this necklace. Like it was, it was over and done within about 10 seconds. And it was just, but it didn't feel like, it was a very like lucky situation, but it didn't feel weird based on like everything that had happened it, that week. Like being, being on a cruise with some of my favorite bands, you know, in, in, in the world, like some of the bands that like inspired me so much. And then like winning like a $300 Sapphire necklace did not feel like yeah that's at all in comparison yeah, that's like the least important part yeah touring with bands that you idolize what was the band that you toured with or played a show with that blew your mind yet when you met them backstage you realized that they were just humans because that happened to mm. me so many times mm. we've been very lucky to tour with some like incredible bands i seem to I, the band that's like coming to mind like we did a few dates with um with pixies mm. and i mean that was like inc incredibly like it was a huge honor and also i remember being on stage and just being like subtly aware that like every single song was like a pixies ripoff in some way <laughs> and i was like oh shit like i hope like the audience and the pixies themselves do not notice um 
it was it was it was strange meeting meeting the pixies like mm. i mean they i think that they're quite a little bit troubled characters maybe um but like so so lovely as well and yeah. we we did have like um a kind of drunken night out with <laughs> dave lovering and um joey santiago in prague and um Dave Lovering is also a magician and he was doing magic tricks. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. He he does like um he actually does like professional kind of magic shows and stuff. And um and he was doing like card tricks for us and like everyone in the bar and it was it was amazing. It kind of made me touring touring with the Pixies made me understand what it would be like being in a band together for like 20 30 years. Yeah. Um, which, you know, <laughs> to be honest, I don't think that's a reality. Nowadays, I can't see with the social media and the way that things work now, I can't see bands lasting that long. No, and they don't. And it's because, you know, like, not to kind of get back into, you know, the music industry, but the music yeah. industry is not built like to, for bands to last that long nowadays. No. No. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really all the bands that have lasted um a very long time are, are bands from um a different era um or bands that are or artists that are exceptions to the rule i.e mm. people that have become like basically like national treasures if i think about it the only band that still exists from when i started is wolf alice mm. otherwise everyone's fallen under the radar or gone done something else i just think like i don't know i don't know what happens now i mm. it, it kind of like troubles me what the future is for bands just the way the speed at which things change these days i'm just struggling to see how someone can really establish themselves in the way that bands like Oh, to, for use of a better example, like Nirvana, but then like bands that we love, like Wilco or Pavement or Dinosaur Junior. I don't know what the future is for that kind of music. I mean, that that's a rhetorical question, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, mean, unless you've got any answers. <laughs> I think bands today, there needs to be kind of, um, I feel like when bands start, you know, they need to assess their priorities. It's mm. like, what? why are they doing this? Are they doing this because they want to? Are they doing this because they have to? And, mm. you know, over the years, like, I mean, I'm not trying to kind of sound like elitist or, or whatever, but like music is something that like I cannot escape from. Like I've tried yeah. to like put it down and I just can't. Like I will be releasing music for the rest of my life because... Yeah because that's like just what I do. And that's like the um, the way I kind of survive. That sounds really pretentious and I know it does, but it's true. Um, but like, I think bands, you know, it's it's important that they, that they assess, you know, why it is they're doing it and, um, you know, kind of what the goal is, I suppose. Mm. And if they, if they want to make like, if they want to have a really long career, then I think it's important to assess what it will take to do that and you know what they want to do i think there are bands like there are exceptions to the rule um and those bands are often like really really important like king gizzard and the lizard wizard um they've released tons of albums and they're so so well loved and it's because mm. they keep challenging themselves i think that's a really important thing for bands to do like they need to keep making it interesting for themselves i think bands that that fail including my own i think they they don't they don't keep it interesting for themselves they get bored and they um i think they care too much about what other people think about the listener and they don't care about pleasing themselves creatively and that's the most important thing because that's why you start making music and at some point down the road you lose sight of that it's like whenever bands like um make like like a rubbish massive stadium album like there are so many examples but like kings of leon like they oh, start yeah. they they started uh, they were like their first two three records were like i really loved them obviously it got more about like maintaining the kings of leon business and mm. the kings of leon machine and that's what it becomes about and it and it doesn't necessarily become about making music that you want to make anymore it's just music that you you know feel an obligation to make people know when bands mean it 
when they're doing yeah. it for the when they're doing it for the right reasons. And you know, if I'm being completely honest with myself, I don't think Yuck were doing it for the right reasons for quite a while. Uh, um, and it's quite painful for me to admit that, to be honest. Mm. But it's um, I think when I look back on it, like you've really got to ask yourself very difficult questions as a musician, ones that you don't necessarily know know how to answer at the time but in retrospect you know you have to kind of look at things in a very kind of um under a microscope almost and ask yourself very difficult questions questions like why are you doing this for the right reasons um you know did you did you need to to release this album and you know if you're unsure about it then the answer is probably no um and i think you know obviously like yuck kind of ended officially ended a few weeks ago and i think it's really important for bands to know when to end yeah you know um, i wholeheartedly agree with that yeah <laughs> i want to go to a moment this wasn't on tour as such where you caused the most outrageous sequence of events that i have ever experienced in my life <laughs> I'm going to play an audio clip now. Is it incriminating? And it's not incriminating. <laughs> you might need a drink for this one. I'd get a drink for this one. And you're going to explain what happened here. All right. Okay, listen. Listen. This is out of control. I am in charge here. Horn. Who is okay? Why are there so many people uh, masturbating? I have no idea. You share the link. This is this is. Who shared the link? I mean, I think it's important to understand the situation first of all. You explain. You explain now how that that happened. Okay, so what you just heard was a Zoom party um, that was in celebration of Happiness's album release. Um, it was a fairly civilized event, um, like maybe like 20 or 30 people on Zoom. Most people were muted. Ash was doing some lip syncing, um, which was the music that you heard in the background. Um, anyway, I thought it would be funny to share the Zoom link <laughs> on Yuck's Twitter um and yeah little did i know that basically like there are people online who trawl for zoom links and when they find one like it's just kind of uh bombed it's that things called like zoom bombing or something and people go on there and they they wreak havoc and this was so i tweeted the link and basically i thought that like there would be how like, many people Okay, I thought there would be like one guy being like, oh my god, happiness, like, I love your album. Like, anyway, bye, this is weird. But actually, what happened was like maybe like 30 to 40 like people I, mas I masturbating. It was like a hundred. And I was just, I was lip syncing to Christine the Queens, I think. You didn't even realize it was happening at the time, which is. Really I didn't even realize what was going on. When I came back, all I saw was like 50 men masturbating. But there was worse than that. There were people like being run over, people with like their heads being cut off. And... It was like it was like that scene in Clockwork Orange where that guy is forced to like watch all that horrible shit. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, was, yeah. it was like it was like uh like imagine like the Brady Bunch, but like every square is like the most is like your worst nightmare. It was like it was like, <laughs> it was like that. Um and yeah, and then everyone was like, who shared the link? Someone shared it, who shared it? And I was like, oh fuck, um, I don't know what to do. Like, this is really weird. And I was like, oh okay i'm gonna have to tell them guys i'm really sorry i shared the link like i didn't think it was gonna end like that if i knew that 100 people would would suddenly jump on the zoom call and start masturbating i would i would not have done it i thought it was going to be like one guy from brazil who was just like i really like your band thanks very much i'm gonna go now but it was like 100 masturbating people and i can only apologize again if i would have known i, I wouldn't have done it but yeah see this is why 
it went down in history. It was a moment. People were really upset by it, and I'm not surprised. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there was one. There was one guy that was just literally pooing on Zoom. Yeah, yeah, that was bad. And people were like struggling with that. And like you can hear in the background, there are multiple people calling me, being like, "Shut it down! Shut it down! Shut it down!" And I didn't, I didn't know what to do. The worst thing about it, right, was that people. Okay, so the worst thing for me was that there was this really loud, distorted voice going over the top, being like, "You're alive on Pornhub," mm-hmm. and uh, and then calling out like individual people on the Zoom call, so you knew it was real. Now yeah. it was it was quite shocking. But people were, were like blaming me as if this was part of my plan to do this. And it's just like, no, I did not, like, I didn't mean for this to happen. I didn't orchestrate this. This wasn't some kind of like secret plan. Like I'm going to fuck up this like happiness Zoom call. Like, no, that's not, that wasn't my intention. Okay. All right. I'm going to ask you now, what's the story that's going to shock me and the listeners? Uh, from, from Tor? Yeah. Like, Okay. This is quite a shocking one, but basically I was, I was, uh, I think I was 20 at the time and we were on a really early yacht tour. We were supporting um, a band called Smith Westerns um, in America. And I was really, I was new to touring. I was, I was fresh faced. I was like, um, so like ready to go. Um, And I was just having the best time. And in LA, there was a party and it was thrown by some people who we were working with at the time. And I'm not going to say who they were, but one of the people, um, and obviously I'm not going to say any names, um, basically they rented out like a duplex of apartments above a Mexican restaurant for this party. And um, in in one of the rooms, I was with this guy and I, I didn't really know him very well, but it was it was just me and him and he took out a lot of cocaine and poured it onto the table and he said all right max i'm gonna cut this cocaine into the shape of a and i was like okay i'd rather if you i'd rather if you didn't do that because i am of jewish descent and i don't know whether you know this but this is the symbol of our oppressors so i would rather if you you didn't do that, but I would still quite like some cocaine. So just <laughs> any other shape you want. I mean, it's sort of if you change it a little bit, it's a peace sign, no? Yeah, and actually, that's that's what happened. No, uh, it was. <laughs> it, it How did it feel sign. as a Jewish man snorting a swap? I didn't snort the fucking. Swap. I told I told him. I told him outright i'm not snorting that cocaine if it's a swap i i laid down the law um and then but like then other people started coming into the room because obviously if you if you pour a bunch of cocaine onto the table other people are going to want to get involved so whenever someone came into the room he was like hey i was going to pour this cocaine i was going to cut this cocaine into the shape of a swap but max here is jewish he said that to every person who came into the room and (laughs) it was it was really weird um but he didn't do it. He, um, in the end, he just cut it into one huge meter long line. To me, as a Jew, I feel like, oh, fuck you and your swap. I've just snorted it. But maybe, maybe that's inappropriate. The Nazis definitely did that, though. We have to. Oh, my God, they did. <laughs> which brings me, which brings me to the last question. There's a tour that we've both done that is not specified music we've both done an israel tour <laughs> how's that related to nazis ash <laughs> well I, I don't know it's jews nazis i get it that's a very clear link my experience of israel tour was fully this i was a boy at the age of 16 really struggling with my sexual identity suddenly i was placed on a bus 50 percent men women. This was the first time in my life that I had existed in a space where there was 50% women because previously I had been to male-only schools. Don't ask why. Probably explains why I'm dressed like this right now. But my Israel tour experience 
was the only time I felt heterosexual in my whole life. I didn't I didn't even kiss anyone on Israel tour, Ash. It sounds like you got really lucky. Um, I was like, I was like hot property on Israel tour. You know, like it was for you, like this like eye-opening experience with girls. It's like, it's the longest period of time that you, well, that most kids have had away from their parents when they, yeah. when they spend a month in Israel. And a lot of the time you're unsupervised. You are going to, you are going to like want to get with girls. It's like, a, it's like a massive, it's a massive time. I totally get what you're saying. Like it's a big though that month is is a big kind of period of of self-discovery, I think, like in terms of, you know, sexuality. And you know, there were like there were people who were like, you know, getting with each other and not like having sex because we were like although we although I don't know, it was we were 16, weren't we, at the time. What's your assessment of it now? Because I struggle with it. I struggle yeah. with the extent to which it was like a I was duped into believing that Israel was the answer to everything. We were we were blindfolded to the realities to the extent that they blindfolded us into Jerusalem. And the only reason I can really understand why was because they didn't want us to see the reality before we got to the wailing wall. Yeah. I, I mean... feel taken I feel taken for a fool. I have a very complicated relationship with Israel, quite a painful relationship because yeah. my mom grew up there and she is English, but she, my, my grandpa had a huge religious turn and moved yeah. my mom's entire family to Israel. And what she experienced was constant war. And so she like does not have very good things, good memories about living no. growing up in Israel but like I still have family over there my entire childhood was visiting aunts uncles cousins everything yeah. and my grandparents died there my uncle died there I still have like my aunties and cousins and stuff so you know I, I have a very a very like real relationship with Israel but it's it's also a very painful one and what you talk about like feeling like duped or fooled into kind of this this relationship with it i totally relate to that like there was no there was there was no mention of the other side of the narrative yeah. um there was there was no mention of that i wasn't i wasn't taught about that I, I grew up learning to love israel unconditionally and unfortunately i had to discover um the kind of slightly painful truth about about Israel later on but I had to do that for myself I'm very grateful to to my Jewish camp because it gave me a Jewish network um so my Jewish summer camp it, it gave me a bunch of Jewish lifelong friends that I would not have met if it wasn't for Noam and that's really important because for Jewish people you need like Jewish people need to stick together because like unfortunately like all Jewish people will to some extent experience anti-semitism in their life and it hurts a lot more if, if you don't know any other jews that you can talk about it with and so i'm really grateful to know and my to my jewish summer camp for that but at the same time yes it was um it was it was a little bit unfortunate that i wasn't taught that i had to find out the other side of the narrative mm. um myself and you know i think i think a lot of um, the kind of problem with people's political positions about Israel and, um, you know, from a Jewish perspective is that is that they've grown up with a very one-sided view. And I think it's really important to understand both sides of a narrative before you form an opinion. And I think for a lot of Jewish people, and this is down to Jewish education, like as, as a child and also potentially Jewish societies and university as well, it presents a very one-sided view. And I think I think that needs to change in order for progress to happen. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, there's a re there is a real issue with, I think, cultures presenting their one-sided view and not addressing the other. Um, so on that note, I would just like to, like to ask you, uh, why don't you tell the audience about your podcast, and what is next for Max Bloom as oh, yeah. a touring musician? 
Yes. So, so right now um, I'm taking a break from a podcast that I was doing, but uh, season two will be coming soon. The podcast is called Jew-ish, Jew-ish. The podcast is about um, one-to-one interviews with Jews, um, uh, a lot of musicians and Jewish people who uh, wear their Judaism either influences their art or plays a big part in their life or whether they are activists or basically have something to say about their Jewish identity. And the aim, the the podcast was inspired by a very anti-Semitic incident um, that occurred with uh, a rapper called Wiley. um, And he went on a very anti-Semitic rant and it kind of blew a conversation open that needed to happen. So I thought, what's a good way to kind of... um, show people what Jews are really like, because I feel like there's a kind of misunderstanding there uh, for what Jews are and what Jews believe. And it's not a kind of monolithic uh, religion or a kind of ethnicity. It's it's a lot more than that and a lot more varied. So I wanted to kind of show people how 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 varied the, um, the Jewish people are, I suppose. So there's about, I think there's about 24 episodes online at the moment. And I've interviewed, obviously, Ash is on there, and then Ezra Furman, um, who was amazing, and then Brian Chase, drummer from Yeah Yeah Yeahs, loads of people. Anyway, so that's that's the uh, one thing I've been working on. And then um, I have a new album called Pedestrian, um, which is coming out June 25th. I believe. Um, and yeah, that is a solo album under my own name, Max Bloom. And yeah, so that's what I'm doing. And so the curtain comes down on the first season of The Pink Room. Thank you to Max, who is the funniest man I know, and to all the other guests who appeared on the first season of The Pink Room. Thanks also to World of Wonder for making this podcast happen. There are a few things I'd like to reflect on. Firstly, we need to find a better way to support women in the music industry. And that starts with ensuring a 50-50 split in crews and lineups. Secondly, I'd like to encourage you to bring up the difficult conversations. Having the conversation is crucial to learning and progress. And finally, I encourage you to reach out and speak to your friends as much as possible in these times. We all have scary and stressful lives, but take the time out of your day to really check in with the ones you love. The conversations I had kept me going through the dark times of the pandemic. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you everyone for listening. And remember Queens, what happens on tour definitely get shared in the pink room.